Our scripture lesson today comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 13. Hear now these words. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I hope, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three and the greatest of these is love the word of god in scripture the word of god within us the word of god among us thanks be to god good morning friends my name is scott gilliland i'm the senior pastor here at arapahoe united methodist church and i'm so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us this morning if this is your first sunday to be with us or if you're watching for the first time later on this week if you're not yet receiving communication from our church or if you've not heard from me i want to encourage you to go to our website arapahoeumc.org new let us know um, that you're here and if you fill out that short form on that page it'll take you 10 seconds you'll get our weekly newsletter if you let us know that you have kids in the home. You'll also get our weekly kids ministry newsletter, and then you'll get a personal contact from myself and another one of our pastors on staff. So be sure to let us know that you are with us today. Um, we are continuing and actually concluding our sermon series called Unmasked, where we have been looking at this month of August, the different things that have been revealed during this pandemic season, the ways in which our culture has not trained us very well, um, and how our faith can lead us to a life that is more full of health and healing and, and hope uh, than we would be otherwise. We've talked about the importance of grieving well. Last week we talked about uncovering and unmasking justice during this time, in this unique season where we are both going through a pandemic and also unearthing um, justice in our country in a way that we haven't seen for a long while. Today, to get us into our message and our topic, I want to share with us a couple of, of studies uh, that were conducted back in 2014. 
One of them came from Beijing, from uh, Beihong University in Beijing, China. It was a team of researchers who were trying to find the connections between our emotions and and what items go viral on the internet, and and which emotions motivate us to help things go viral. They found that, um, for instance, sadness is a really poor motivator, as is disgust. Um, Joy is a pretty good one. It does all right. But Better than all of those emotions is rage. Rage gets us smashing the share button and gets our blood pressure going in a unique way and leads to so much of viral content online. It doesn't just spread through our social media feeds, however. It spreads into us. Another group, this time at Princeton University, that same year, 2014, they, did a, they conducted a study with over 700,000 Facebook users, and they controlled and manipulated their feeds to uh, present them with either more positive or more negative uh, posts uh, that they would be subjected to. And what they found is, as the, as the user's news feed became more and more negative, they themselves reported feeling more negatively. Their feelings of rage increased. And this might sound like common sense, but like the common cold, anger and rage appear to be quite contagious for us, especially in our online world. More recently, and to make matters worse, in in April of this year, a study came out of Italy. Some researchers in Italy found that that echo chamber effect that we're all beginning to feel where you go online and and it seems like more and more people are on your side, right? And and the things that make you angry make them angry. And and, and, and it begins to to put you in this echo chamber place where, where everybody looks, thinks, and acts just like you. Well, that is by design. They found that sites like Facebook and Twitter have algorithms that are uniquely designed to separate us into these echo chambers of communities that all kind of assimilate around similar virtues and values. It's, it's why you notice that your, your feed in recent years has become people that think the same way you do and are angry about the same things you are. It's also quite damaging. It's the reason why young white men are finding this pit, this abyss of hatred and racial anger that leads them to places like Kenosha to open fire with assault rifles. This is something we've got to talk about. What once was a fun little website that college kids got on and Facebook is now becoming a tool that is ripping us apart as a people. Divisiveness isn't a new thing. It's been going on for decades. And, and, and knowing that our, our online presence makes us angrier and angrier, knowing that it's creating more and more division, knowing that we're about to enter into the, the, the highest um, uh, temperature in our election season, and we know presidential election seasons have gone so well in recent history right? Knowing all these things. And then on top of that, we're living in a global pandemic where almost all of our social interaction right now takes place where? Through a screen. The same way we're interacting right now. That's a recipe for disaster. So here's a question that I've been wrestling with this, with this week. In a culture of rage and division, how can our faith lead us towards reconciliation? That's a word that I don't hear very often in the news right now. In a world of rage and division, how can our faith lead us towards reconciliation? To help us in this conversation, we're going to turn our attention to the words of the Apostle Paul that we just heard 
from his first letter to the Corinthians. I want to share with you uh, a a little bit about Corinth, the the city that he was writing to. This was a letter written to a church in a place called Corinth. And I've got a map that I want to show you. This is Corinth. It sits in this little isthmus. I think that's how you pronounce that word. I don't know. Don't don't correct me if I'm wrong. But it's this isthmus in, uh, in Greece. It was a Greek city that was destroyed when the Roman Empire was being established a couple hundred years prior to Paul's life in the first century. Now, it was a strategically placed city. It was important because it sat right next to these two huge bay areas where there were lots of port towns and a lot of trade took place, but Corinth sat just inland enough to be protected by the surrounding geography, so it was a strategically important place. That's why the Roman Empire rebuilt it. So it was a relatively young city, less than 200 years old by the time Paul is helping to plant a church community there. And on top of that, because it's new, that, that means that people were drawn there primarily for economic reasons. It was, a, it was a trade hub, and that meant that it was culturally and ethnically diverse as people came to live the Corinthian dream of climbing the social ladder uh, through um, artisanal objects and through trading of wares, right? It was a very hierarchical city. It had a history of mistreating the poor. Can you imagine living in a place that's relatively young on the global grand scale, that is radically culturally and ethnically diverse, that is driven by an economic growth, that people come here looking for a higher social status, trying to live some kind of dream? Can you imagine living in a place like that? Maybe the words that Paul shares with the people of Corinth could apply to the people of DFW living in America in 2020. So he's, Paul is speaking into this Corinthian church, into the struggles that they're finding being a radically diverse people. The church in Corinth was radically diverse. It was largely Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, but that didn't mean they were all the same. In fact, they all came from various faith traditions and backgrounds as well. And so part of this letter is Paul trying to make a case that God desires diversity, not just in the world, but also in the church. That God is radically inclusive and and, and has this God-sized vision for a diverse people, that all people are God's people. In chapter 12, the, the chapter just before the words we just heard, In chapter 12, Paul is talking about the the myriad of spiritual gifts, and he continues on this theme in chapter 14 as well. He says, we're all one body, but we are many parts, and each part is important and different, that some of us are called to be prophets, some apostles, some preachers, some evangelists. And so if you were a Corinthian listening to Paul's words, you might think, okay, I get it. I get the diversity is great. I get that it's a good, holy, God-sized dream, and yet... Diversity can be so challenging, too. At times we notice the divisions more than we notice what unites us. So what is it that does unite us, Paul? What is it that does bind us together as the Christian people? And that's where chapter 13 comes in. You've probably heard these words read at a wedding before. And while it's, it's a beautiful set of scriptures for a wedding day, it's certainly words that uh, a couple venturing into the gift of marriage should hear, get words about love and reconciliation. It, it's, it's a shame that we don't hear these words on a Sunday morning more often because that really wasn't Paul's intention for this passage. He was writing these words to a church. He was writing them to a people living in the midst of diversity and wondering how we could walk forward together. And for Paul, the answer is love. 
and not just love in a general sense, but that agape-style love we've talked about in recent weeks, that, that bigger-than-you, others-oriented, universal, God-sized, unconditional love. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, agape love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you hear a lot of clanging cymbals in your life right now? And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Let's stop there for a second. This others-oriented kind of love, Paul says, has to be at the core of who we are and what we do if we hope to accomplish anything of value in this life. It reminds me of a course I took in college, creative writing. And my professor at the time said something that I thought was profound beyond just uh, the use as a writer in college. She said, when writing, always write with the reader in mind. Write with the reader in mind. In fact, it sounds a lot like what Paul is saying here, that it doesn't matter what you have to say. If you think you've got the greatest story to tell in the world, if you tell it in a way that no one can hear you, or that your reader misinterprets what you mean, then you failed. You've got to write with the reader in mind. Who's your audience? What do you want them to feel? What do you want them to know? What do you want them to sense about what you've said? Paul would argue to live with the other in mind. Live with your neighbor in mind. Live with your enemy, if you want to say that, in mind. It reminds me that it doesn't matter what I say and what I do in this life. If, if, if I don't have that others-oriented love, if I'm not considering their perspective, if I haven't put on their shoes, if I'm not considering how it is that I'm being perceived, then ultimately I will have failed because I'm making it about myself and not about my neighbor. Love leads us to speak and act in a way that our message is clear and heard and received. And I use all three of those words intentionally, clear. Sometimes we think what we're saying, we think we know what we're saying, and yet that message isn't being communicated. But love will help us to think with the reader in mind and speak and act in a way that is clear, heard. There are a lot of cymbals and gongs in the world right now. They are only going to get louder between now and November. The way we rise above that is not by ringing louder than the other cymbals and gongs, but instead speaking and living in a way that is different, that is unique, that is set apart, where people take notice. Received. All of that is meaningless if at the end of the day it has no effect upon the person for which it's intended. Love leads us to speak and act in a way that our message is clear, heard, and received. Now, this can be challenging for us as a people who are so frequently called to justice, right? And the Christian faith is full of tensions, things that feel like they're at odds with one another, and yet we are called to hold both at the same time. Paul has a radically inclusive theology and uplifts this tension that says this, love is knowing that all of God's people truly are God's chosen people, and we are called to hold in tension both our tenacious persistence for justice in our world and our tenacious persistence for our enemy to be reconciled not only to us but also to to God. We are called to hold both. 
And that's a difficult call, but my friends, did Jesus ever promise us anything easy? Paul goes on to say this, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Quickly, I want to acknowledge that this passage, because it's so frequently associated with marital relationships, um, this specific portion is so frequently used to keep people trapped in abusive or toxic relationships. And I think it's important when we teach on scriptures that we know have been misused in the past that we name that and acknowledge that that is not what Paul is trying to say. There's nothing loving about allowing yourself to be abused or allowing an abuser to continue to abuse. There's nothing loving about perpetuating a toxic relationship. Paul is talking to the church. Paul is talking to a people. Paul is developing an inclusive theology, and part of what allows us all to be included is Paul says all of us have fallen short. Did you hear that list? Did you hear that list of of, of virtues of love? Did you feel your toes getting stepped on at any point? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. I've been like three of those things already this morning, right? Have you? I think it's so easy for us, especially in a culture and in, in, in a time in which we're living right now, to get so quick to notice all the things wrong in our world, and I do this all the time, and I want to point fingers at all the ways in which the people around me and the world around me just needs to change, and Paul is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul is calling us to the same thing Jesus called us to, and that is that the first step is always one of introspection. Before I can pretend to have anything to offer in terms of conversation in the larger world, I need to do a serious moral inventory and consider all the ways in which I have failed to be a capital L love in my life. Paul is always such a good equalizer, is he not? Friends, when I hear Paul saying these words, I hear Paul saying that love leads me to point the finger at myself first. Before I start pointing the finger at other people, before I start trying to tell the world how to live, I ought to take a serious moral inventory, point the finger at myself first. Paul goes on to say, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. I wonder if Paul were writing this letter to the Richardson, Richardsonians? How do we, what do we say? I don't know. Richardsonites. Richard, Richardsonomians. Nailed it. If Paul was writing a letter to the church in Richardson today, would he say, the election will come to an end. COVID will come to an end. These things are partial, but one day the complete will come. And we're so focused on things that are, are so important. I'm not trying to minimize or trivialize the importance of these next two months or these next two years for us as a global people. But I also have felt myself asking myself the question, am I allowing love to lead me in this time? Because the things of love, capital L love, agape, universal, others-oriented love, those are the things that Paul says will last. Those are the things that if I invest myself, my life, my faith into, these things will live on far beyond me. Love, my friends, sees the story as bigger than just my story or your story. It's our story. It's God's story. 
Do we not believe in a God who sees the story already unwritten? Do we not believe in a God who says the kingdom of God is coming and also here but not yet? Do we believe these things? My friends, love has a long view. It's able to pull back, see the larger story, and to know that this election's not the end of our story. This pandemic's not the end of our story. These things will come to an end, but the story of love, capital L, love, that's a story that lives on. The legacy of love lasts. So what am I investing myself in? How am I allowing love to lead me in this season? Paul finishes up his passage in chapter 13 by saying this, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. Now, I think Paul's being a little tough on children here. You know, Jesus said we ought to be a bit more childlike, right? I think what Paul's really saying is, at one point in my life, I lived by my, base, by my more baser instincts, and now I live in a different way. I would argue that we could all stand to be a bit more childlike right now. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide these three. And the greatest of these is love. One of my favorite authors is Brene Brown, and she says something I have to come back to time and time again, especially if I'm going to try to be a person of faith who seeks reconciliation in my life and in my world. She says this, I know my life is better when I work from the assumption that everyone, everyone, everyone is doing the best they can. I know my life is better when I work from the assumption that everyone is doing the best they can your neighbor who has the wrong sign in their yard, the politician you can't wait to vote out of office, the coworker who grinds your gears because they keep heating up fish in the microwave, and that coworker may be your spouse or roommate right now at home. Everyone is doing the best that they can. Paul uses this language of a mirror dimly because he's speaking to the people in Corinth. It was an artisanal city, right? They, they made goods, and one of the things they made that they were famous for was their bronze wares, things like mirrors. The people of Corinth would have known what a good quality mirror would have looked like, how perfect the image would have appeared, and they would have known what a poorly crafted mirror would look like, a mirror dimly, a mirror that was dim and dingy and, and not well made. Paul is saying right now, Our faith is kind of like that. We see God in this mirror dimly. We see God, but indirectly, not completely. We can't fully know or communicate in God like we will one day. But I'm thinking about the mirror dimly, and I'm thinking about us as a people in this pandemic season. And we don't have face-to-face as an option When even we are face-to-face, we're masked up. We're seeing each other through screens and through emails and through phone calls. It's a mirror-dimly kind of season in which we find ourselves. When I look at people in a mirror-dimly, it is so easy for me to see a caricature instead of a person. When I hop online and I see somebody say something and I want to slap the all caps on and just put them on blast, I'm not talking to a person. I'm talking to a caricature of who they are. It's easy to see others as caricatures. It's easy to see caricatures in the mirror dimly, but love leads us to see others as siblings, 
called to be the same family. On the subject of siblings, I want to close today by sharing a short story with you. My mom uh, grew up, uh, she has two older siblings, a sister and a brother, and she would always tell me about growing up as children. Whenever they would get in fights, my grandmother had a really smart practice, a strategy to get them to reconcile with each other. She got in a fight with her brother. My, my grandmother would make them sit down, say, I want you to sit down, cross-legged in front of each other, facing each other, just outside of arm's reach, right? You can't let them touch each other. And, and, and sit there and tell you, tell you to get up. So they'd sit there, and you remember what it's like. I mean, we, we all know what it's like today. Have you ever been cross with somebody? You sit there, and they start out just making faces. And then within 30 seconds, what happens? One person starts to grin, and then the other one starts to giggle. And then before too long, they're both laughing and smiling, and my grandmother would say, okay, now you can get up. There's something holy and sacred about face-to-face interaction. I don't want us to lose that today. There's something special about being an incarnational face-to-face people. We believe in a God for whom reconciliation was initiated because God became face-to-face with us. Face-to-face is important. It allows us to see the humanity in one another in a way that a mirror dimly can never fully capture. So I need us to name and recognize that we are living in a mirror dimly moment and reconciliation may not be possible in the way that it normally could be. And what that means is we need not to try to make the mirror dimly function in a way that it cannot. What it means is that we may need to express that patience that Paul talks about, where we can bear all things, endure all things, knowing that this season is not forever. And that once again, face-to-face can be a real possibility, but maybe there are conversations that need to simply wait for that time to come. My friends, love reminds us that some relationships, and only you know which relationships those are, but some relationships are important enough to wait patiently for the day when we can once again have true, authentic, face-to-face conversation. We are and have always been a people called to reconciliation. Don't get caught off sides these next two months or next two years. Don't turn to the mirror dimly and ask it to be something for us which it cannot. Can we be patient? Can we be kind? Can we endure and bear in the name of a love that is beyond ourselves, that is others-oriented, that is a God-sized dream? Can we allow love to guide us today, tomorrow, and forever? Amen. When we face an unknown future that we can't imagine yet. When the closeness we have treasured turns from blessing into threat. As we miss our friends and loved ones, as we crave community, may we look God in this season for a whole new way to be.
Jesus faced the lonely desert as a time to look within. There he met such trial and conflict, there he knew you were with him. In this time of separation, when we miss the life we've known, may we hear your voice proclaiming, I am here, you're not alone. May we cherish those around us as we never have before. May we think much less of profit. May we learn what matters more. May we hear our neighbor's suffering. May we see our neighbor's pain. May we learn new ways of offering life and health and hope again. God, when illness comes to threaten and when so much here goes wrong, may we know this thing for certain that your love is sure and strong. You're beside us in our suffering, and when times are surely tough, we may face an unknown future, but it's filled, Lord, with your love. Today's invitation is an opportunity for more community. Uh, we often feel isolated, and maybe you haven't felt like growing your faith, but I assure you that there are many within this congregation and visitors that are joining us that are interested in joining in growing their faith together. So here's a few different ways that you can do that over the next few weeks. <clears throat> Last year, we, we started a MOPS group here, a Mothers of Preschoolers group here at Arapahoe. Many of our day school moms have needed a community where they can talk about their struggles, their joys, their um, who they are and, and how they've uh, come to be parents, um, even for a very short time during the week. And so the first meeting of the, the fall semester will begin in September, and they'll be meeting on Zoom the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month from 7 at night until 8.30. It's such a tough season for all of us. Um, but if you're a mom with young children and you want to become a part of that community, then you can find details at our website forward slash connect. The next thing is exciting uh, for me. We have uh, missed the opportunity to share with uh, and to see the visual of our stained glass windows here in the sanctuary. And so starting on September 9th on Wednesdays at noon for about a half an hour, I'll offer a devotional based on each of the six windows that we have. Uh, we'll share what the, what the creation was, we'll share the biblical reference, and then we'll share some uh, learning opportunities and, and uh, reflection questions that you can carry with you throughout the week. 
We'll be asking what's represented in the windows, what's the biblical message, and what does it mean for my life today? So if you're interested in that, go to our Facebook page and find the Facebook Live group. Click the blue button on the type red corner um, and select Facebook Live Study Group. And finally, uh, we have an, an active Enneagram group that expands even beyond our community. And one of the things that's very exciting about that community is that we have a monthly meetup where we talk about different um, opportunities and different aspects of the Enneagram and then share together in breakout groups based on our numbers or our triads. These are all words that may not mean anything to you, but come join us. Um, we're, we've got a, a Enneagram journey starting um, tomorrow, in fact. Um, but we want you to join us in that Enneagram meetup. The next one is Thursday, September 10th. And again, you can, rep you can register on our website at the Connect um, section.